Hola, welcome to Dismantling Diet Culture. Fuck being calladita, the only Spanglish anti-diet podcast that teaches you from a sociological lens, feminism, and intuitive eating coaching to dismantle diet culture. I'm your host, Dr. Hortense Jimenez, and I am passionate about dismantling diet culture and helping you heal your relationship with food and your body. I'm a mother, daughter, comadre, amiga, community member, professor, health coach, and published author. On this show, I share my personal experience with diet culture, tips and strategies, and educational content to help you understand diet culture and systems of oppression so that you can have the tools to challenge diet culture. Current and future generations do not deserve to inherit your diet culture trauma, and I'm here to help you. If you're on a mission to hear your body and food traumas and embody your authentic self unapologetic, welcome to Dismantling Diet Culture. Fuck being calladita. Hola, bienvenidos a Dismantling Diet Culture, Fuck Being Calladita. This is your host, Dr. Hortensia Jimenez. Thank you so much for joining me in another episode. Today, we're going to talk about the intersections of diet culture, white supremacy, and its connection to professionalism. And I want to begin by saying that this is another vulnerable episode um, because it is very personal. Um, I've had many experiences throughout my life, particularly so navigating higher education and particularly when I was in my PhD program. And, you know, as a professor and being in this um, social media space, specifically on Instagram and how I have been trying to balance and negotiate my multiple intersecting identities while trying to somehow continue to be professional when I'm experiencing uh, racial microaggressions or um, just other forms of oppression where I feel that I am trying to be silenced or that I can't be me authentically. So this episode really is about what it means to be a Latina professional <laughs> navigating different institutions. And even if you're a BIPOC person, if you're a person of Latin American descent, I'm sure that you can't relate to a lot of what I'm going to share because there's a lot of common threads that BIPOC folks experience in this realm of professionalism. And so I wrote a, a recent post called Fuck Professionalism. <laughs> and I just want to clarify that I'm not entirely saying like screw professionalism, but part of it is like really challenging these notions because it is a social construct professionalism is a social construct. So we need to deconstruct it in a way where we liberate ourselves and whatever shape and form, whatever that may look like for you. I can only speak about my own experience and give you background as a sociologist. So let's begin by giving credit to the work of black scholars. Um, a lot of the work in sociology and critical race theory on social and racial justice is grounded on the work of black folks. So um, I invite you to learn more uh, 
from Beverly uh, Daniel Tantum, learn from Kenneth Jones, from Bell Hooks, from Patricia Hill Collins, and I'll provide uh, the links and information in the show notes. So when I think about professionalism, the first thing that really comes to mind is, okay, what did I learn growing up in a traditional Catholic, Mexican, immigrant, working class household? <laughs> All those intersections, right? And understanding, you know, from my own lived experience as a Mexicana immigrante and being a woman, the lens in which my grandmother, Kimpasescanse, and my aunt and other figures in my family viewed it from an immigrant lens. And it was all about how you presenting yourself to society. And in many ways, it was a form of trying to um, blend in or, or conform like your physical appearance um, was, was important. And by that, I mean is making sure that you were well um, kept, o sea, o sea, que your hygiene, pues, um, I don't know if that makes any sense. Que estuvieras limpio, que bien planchadita, <laughs> no andar con ropa arrugada. Oh my God, that, that, that in itself, you might think like, enseñate a planchar, <laughs> learn how to iron. Que vergüenza que andes con la ropa toda arrugada, que van a decir. So part of that professionalism is that image, the presentation as a, as a woman is, Tienes que estar bien presentable. Y también esta parte de estar bien presentable tenía mucho que ver con la imagen. O sea, la imagen corporal, pero también cómo te ves. Like, part of that had to do with even like the body, body image and the presentation of your body, the hygiene, but also like the makeup, you know. I couldn't wear makeup growing up, but then like, I'm expected to wear makeup later in life. What a contradiction, right? And now I'm like, screw it. I don't want to wear makeup because I don't want to. <laughs> when I wanted to, you didn't let me. So now I don't want to wear makeup. <laughs> but having said that is understanding that in my immigrant family is how you showed up to the world, like through your clothes, said something, right? That you wanted people to take you seriously, even though, you know, a lot of my clothes were, were secondhand from, you know, the Goodwill or the Salvation Army, or I had um, shoes from Payless and Kmart. I never had brand clothes, but honestly, that really didn't matter. What matter is, como estaba presentada, peinada. So I invite you to begin to unpack, like, what did your parents teach you, your guardians or other adult figures in your life because that that's my point and connection to professionalism it might not be the way that um society talks about professionalism but think about what are those cues what cues what code words did you receive growing up in your latinx latina household that sent you that message about how you needed to present yourself because society viewed you differently because of your identities. So even though my family didn't have the language, the academic language to articulate like, you know, what we talk about, they really understood the importance of kind of showing up in a way where you don't see or not seen 
threatening where you kind of blend in where you don't take space you know these are just some things to to consider and i can't blame my family for that you know because that's what they thought was best that's what they knew and you know obviously that created a lot of harm but to kind of put closure a little bit on this section is i really want you to think about what are some of the messages that you received at home from from family members about the presentation of yourself right your your image because that is actually rooted in professionalism okay uh now let's go ahead and uh, begin to unpack what are some of these characteristics of uh, professionalism and how is this like connected to diet culture and white supremacy if you've been following me on instagram and on my podcast i believe and i hope so that by now you have a really good understanding of how i conceptualize diet culture but let me just give you a review no no me cuesta nada refrescarles un poquito la memoria go back to episode number one what is diet culture and i'll just keep saying this for me dr hortensia jimenez who is a mexicano immigrante queer indígena how I conceptualize diet culture is more than diets. For me, diet culture is a system of oppression, systems and structure in our society that are oppressive for BIPOC folks and people in marginalized identities. That's in a nutshell. That is diet culture. Therefore, when I have these solo episodes and when I have guest speakers, we will be talking about many issues because they all connect to diet culture. And ultimately, rooted in diet culture is white supremacy. So having established that, now we're going to talk about, okay, what is these intersections of diet culture, white supremacy, and professionalism? Since diet culture is rooted in systems of oppression, then one of these roots of diet culture is racism. It is white supremacy. And white supremacy has been part of the founding of this nation. And talking about the United States, because this is where, you know, where I was raised and where I live. We're talking about ideologies, hierarchies of racial belonging, you know, what, what bodies uh, are deserving, what um, bodies are you know, superior. In other words, like what races are superior and inferior, if we think about it in in those lands. But at the same time, it's understanding the values, the practices, and the norms that are carried out by individuals and institutions. So white supremacy is embedded in our society, is in all the institutions, and it is enforced by institutions, through their practices and policies, and as well as individuals at the micro level through their attitudes, their behaviors, okay? Um, so this is an invitation for you um, to begin to think about what attitudes and behaviors do you have about your race, about BIPOC folks, about white folks, right? So you can begin to to dismantle and to question some of the stuff that you've internalized um, so that we can stop, you know, harming others. <laughs> okay, 
So um, having shared that, I want to point out um, sociologist Patricia Hill Collins. I love her work. <laughs> I learned about Patricia Hill Collins when I was an undergrad and you know throughout my education. She talks about different systems of oppression. Uh, particularly, she talks about three systems that are interrelated and interdependent. She says that we cannot understand one system without understanding and looking at the other two systems. Equally, um, Bell Hooks also talks about systems of oppression rooted in white supremacy. So both Patricia Hill Collins and Bell Hooks and Kimberly Crenshaw are talking about systems of oppression and those intersections, right? So systems of oppression and intersectionality, again, this is rooted in theorizing from um, Black women, right? So we need to center and give credit to the amazing Black scholars and social justice activists. So when we're thinking about um, systems of oppression, one of them is white supremacy, right? The system of racial stratification, right? That are placing white folks at the top. That's one. So white supremacy is one system of oppression. Patriarchy is another system. And for those of you who may not know or just need a little bit of refresh, patriarchy is a system of gender oppression where men hold the power and are the central figures in the family, community, government, basically in all these institutions. And the third system is capitalism. And capitalism is a system of class exploitation that produces wealth and income inequality through a profit-based system that maximizes profit for capitalists. And of course, exploits the, the lower classes. So what Patricia Hill Collins, Bell Hooks, and others are saying is that systems of oppression, white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism need to be part of these conversations. Bell Hooks calls it white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, end quote. <laughs> That's how she calls this. She describes these systems as white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. What she's saying, to kind of help you understand this further, is to look at white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy is to have these conversations. And this is my invitation that these interlocking systems of oppression are classism. If you're going to talk about classism, you need to talk about racism and sexism. If you're going to talk about racism, you need to talk about classism and sexism. If you're going to talk about sexism, you have to talk about racism and classism. You follow me? So again, this is the intersectional lens. And patriarchy, white supremacy, and capitalism have shaped the United States, have shaped all these institutions, and it has shaped my life. And it has shaped your life. My invitation to you is how? How has patriarchy, white supremacy, and capitalism shaped your life? I'm an immigrant. So capitalism, man had such a big impact on why I came to this country. You know, I won't impact the you know, patriarchy. <laughs> I felt oppressed all my life for being for being born a female, for being a una mujer. I was already less than a male. There was a lot of sexism in my family. And then being a brown woman and indigenous woman growing up in the United States, 
and the experiences that I had because of white supremacy. You see, so just kind of briefly in a very nutshell, right? Not going into too much detail. I hope you kind of see how these three systems have had an impact in my life. And you know what? It continues to have an impact. And that's why I wanted to really talk about um, these intersections with professionalism because I've been struggling so much. I don't have an answer for you in terms of like, I can tell you like strategies, but this is a real challenge for me right now. Yeah, I'm in my 40s and I'm still fucking struggling to navigate um, institutions and white spaces. How do I take care of my mental health and my spirit while also trying to be true to myself? And, you know, mask this professional persona of Dr. Hortense Jimenez, who at the end of the day is a human being, who's a person who has feelings, <laughs> you know? So what are the roots of um, professionalism or what are some of these, um, como se dice, <laughs> equalities? There we go. <laughs> what are some qualities of, um, professionalism and the whole point of sharing some of these qualities is for you to see how they're rooted in white supremacy and how we can begin to question those and divest in whatever way that might be true to to you right because it's by individual basis when we think about um professionalism oftentimes people think it's about um like codes of conduct um how you act your mannerisms how you dress, basically your behaviors, how you're presenting and communicating in the different areas that you move in in society. Um, professionalism is a unfortunate, and I say unfortunately, um, rooted in white supremacy because it's rejecting BIPOCs and LGBTQ plus folks, neurodivergent folks, immigrants, and so many other marginalized identities. Like it doesn't honor, professionalism doesn't honor BIPOC folks and other marginalized identities because it tells us that we need to conform to certain standards. Otherwise we are quote, unprofessional. That's what it comes down to. So, when someone says you're unprofessional, oftentimes what it's, it's upholding, upholding. <laughs> um, it could be ableist, it could be sexist, classes, even racist, or even ethnocentric ideologies or standards. So um, let me just give you this example. I remember when I used to work for a government entity uh, I was an undergraduate student. So I used to work for an, a government entity and I couldn't speak Spanish with my coworkers because it was quote unprofessional. And I've heard that in many other spaces where people are like, oh, speak English only, only English. So what does that mean? So while you speak English with, you know, the clients or customers or, you know, with people, it is not appropriate to speak in your native language. One message is that sending, how is me speaking Spanish? I'm professional. And you know, um, 
why this podcast is a Spanglish, you know, it's not completely bilingual, but it's somewhat Spanglish where I speak in Spanish and in English and sometimes, you know, in between is for me, it is an act of resistance. It's an act of liberation for my voice. Speaking Spanish is part of my cultural identity, is part of who I am, and it doesn't make me less professional. Who gets to decide what is appropriate and what is professional? I want to invite you to think about that. Who decides what's professional? And the answer is that it doesn't come from BIPOC folks or people in marginalized identities. It comes from white supremacy. So we have been conditioned for most of our lives to fit a certain standard or box. But professionalism, you know, by trying to condition us to behave and act and dress, we deny ourselves our identities, our authenticity. And you know what? I'm not here to shame or blame anyone. Part of healing your relationship with food and body image is recognizing the things that we've done in the past because we wanted to fit in. We wanted to be accepted. We didn't want to, we didn't want to be seen as causing trouble or being too much or taking too much space. Oftentimes, it's a strategy, right, to fit in and to survive. I experienced so much academic trauma and violence when I was pursuing my PhD. It still hurts. I don't know when it's not going to hurt. <laughs> and I've done so much healing. I had three kids while pursuing my PhD. I was birthing a PhD while having my kids. How dare a Latina do that in grad school? Like you're not expected, it's not professional. My son was born during my comprehensive exams, such a hard time. My daughter Itzel was born when I was doing my dissertation research. Elena was born literally a few months after I defended my dissertation. So in the lapse of six years, <clears throat> that took me to get my PhD, I had three kids and I experienced so many racial microaggressions in grad school because the stereotype of, you know, Latina getting pregnant in school and is she gonna finish? And I remember the white so-called feminist scholars in my program, professors who tell me, you're pregnant again? Are you going to finish? You know, many scolded me, many shamed me for my decision of, of deciding to be both a student and a mother because it wasn't professional. So we lose ourselves sometimes when we try to conform. And I am so proud of myself for, for going against these academic oppressive ideologies that only wanted to box me as a grad student. But I was much more than that. So, you know, that's just one, one example of how professionalism really impacted 
my life when I was a graduate student. And this is for all of you. If you're a student, you are more than just a student and be unapologetic and bring in all these identities to your academic spaces. I see you and I validate you and I remind my students the same message all the time. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't need to negotiate or dismiss or downplay certain parts of our identities because it's not professional. How can we show up to the world authentically in our own right? And we're still professional, but it's not based on these um, white standards of our society. Um, another thing that I wanted to mention with um, professionalism is talking about dress codes, <sighs> clothing and how clothing grooming can be forms of uh, bias and discrimination for people in marginalized identities wearing a dress or wearing a skirt or wearing high heels or glittery shoes or wearing their red lipstick you know prisca dorcas oh, i love prisca talks in her book for brown girls about how she uses red as a as a radical act of self-love of her identity and giving <laughs> academia the middle finger because one of her feminist professors has said that it was unprofessional for a woman to wear not wear put on red lipstick <laughs> and i was like oh my god i relate so talking about you know thinking about dress codes i can only speak you know i want to speak about my own experiences <clears throat> part of me my identity is i was like the big hoops. I love big hoops. And to be really honest with you and transparent, I don't think I, I, I started to uh, wear big hoops to, you know, in my courses as a professor in the last year. That's crazy. It's been in the last year that I've been doing that. You know, I love makeup and all that, but I think I'm just lazy for it. <laughs> But okay, so what like the makeup, the clothes, hair is another one, your natural hair. Um, there's different types of hairstyles, different textures, different lengths. And this is culturally, racially, religiously as well. Dreadlocks, braids, hair colors, having curly hair, um, head wraps, and so much other things that are part of someone's identity. Why would that be unprofessional? Why do some companies and some institutions have policies? They have dress code policies where you have to have some type of conformity with, with, with your hair. That is very unfair and it is very discriminatory. I want to link this to um, having even um, braided, like having long braided hair. I didn't realize how much it affected me until last week. And it's been almost 20 years. Um, I used to, when I was growing up, my grandmother would, I always braided my hair, always. I have such a spiritual and deep connection to my ancestors with my braided hair. It is sacred. And um, I used to have like a ponytail and a braided hair or 
dos trenzas, <laughs> uh, two braids. And I was in my 20s and I was, I went to an agency applying for a job. I got the job and I remember one of the, who became my friend, you know, at that point was my coworker. She said something very derogatory and anti-indigeneity, anti-indigenous. She said something like, I didn't know you were smart, that you were in, <laughs> that you were like an ignorant India, una India ignorante patarrajada. Basically, because I had two braids, she automatically, you know, made some assumptions and some stereotypes and just manifested her anti-indigeneity that, that I was ignorant and I was stupid. And I'm confessing to you that since then, publicly, I haven't been out with two braids because I look too indigenous and it really just hit me last week because I was experiencing other racial microaggressions and since I really never addressed this one <laughs> I'm like oh shit like this this really impacted me a lot and mm, unfortunately colleagues would also make certain remarks when I would wear um, indigenous earrings or, or clothes. And at one point a colleague said something along the lines of, I, I like your costume. And I was like, this is not a costume, it's not Halloween. You know, little stuff like that that accumulated. And I, I hit that part of my identity for so many years it's part of it it's not that i i didn't feel i've never been ashamed of my witchol ancestry i've been always so proud i just never felt safe to publicly show that i didn't have like the language or the the tools maybe even the mental capacity to even engage like I do now <laughs> braiding my hair doesn't make me less professional at all why is braiding my hair less professional like why would I need to hide that but again we need to understand that these are ideals you know ideologies that are rooted in white supremacy that are enforced by practices, by institutions, and by individuals. Take home point that I have for you is that if you come from a ethnic cultural background, which you know we all do, <laughs> we all have ethnicity, <laughs> we all have ancestry. <laughs> but um, if you have cultural um, artifacts, symbols, clothes, you know, whatever that might be to, I invite you to begin to, to wear that, to present yourself authentically in that whenever you feel safe and whenever you feel ready. And if that means slowly, you know, doing that one step at a time and in your own way and in your own terms. Okay.
you don't need to conform to other people's standards you don't need to make other people feel comfortable around you you need to continue to be you unapologetic but that takes takes a lot of inner work right and a lot of uh, healing <laughs> dismantling a lot of these oppressive um narratives another area of professionalism that i want to talk about is this idea of um balancing your work life you know like you go off to work and all that matters is basically you as an employee and i think that higher education does the same thing with with students it's like okay we see you as a student everything else is like on the side like we don't care if you're a student veteran if you're a student parent if you're a caregiver etc all of you in this space have multiple roles we all have multiple roles yet part of this professionalism ideology is compartmentalizing our identities and this has a big impact in our um, mental well-being. You cannot separate one part of your identity from the other. Like, they, you know, that is rooted in, in white supremacy and it's rooted in um, Eurocentric ideologies, which is rooted in diet culture. <laughs> it's like a binary. It's one or the other at work in order for you to remain a good employee means that you have to be there on time that you have to do your work efficient etc etc i get that but at the same time there's a lot of burden uh, so much burden to continue to um, mask yourself as just a a worker you know someone who is um, who has to suppress everything that happens outside of work. I know that you know companies are changing and they tend to be a little bit more exclusive, um, inclusive, culturally sensitive, etc. But at the same time, I, I do believe and also research shows that, workplaces continue to enforce this professionalism where you leave your problems at home and you just deal with them when you get home when you go home pero a veces no se puede and if you're a student sometimes you have so much going on in your personal lives i can't tell you so many stories that i hear from my students i have a student who is 18 years old she's 19 i think she's 19 years old she's female she's a caregiver for her mother her mother has uh, different um mental health problems and and also a mental illness and she's a my student is a primary caregiver her father's not around and also she's responsible for her younger sister she missed school two weeks and I reached out and said, hey, what's going on? I haven't seen you. She's like, I'm going through a lot. And then she shared it with me and I was like, wow, my students are so resilient. I have so much admiration and respect for them. But this student learned really well that part of professionalism is like, my personal stuff stays here and then 
my role as a student is just this. When she wasn't able to show up as a student, she stopped showing up. She stopped showing up in her multi-dimensional being that she is. You see what I'm saying? So I'm just giving you an example of a student. But this happens in so many workplaces as well. Of course, we don't want, <laughs> we don't, we don't need our employers to give us like therapy, right? That's not what I'm saying or that we need to be sharing our problems. But oftentimes we can't like show up when we're having a lot of challenges in life. We're expected to show up professional all the time that somehow we have to compartmentalize all these different identities and all these different roles. That is rooted in white supremacy. And I'm not here to tell you like what to do if you're in the, um, if you're a student, if you're in a profession, I'm just here to have this conversation and to tell you that it's harmful, that it actually, it really impacts BIPOC folks. It impacts people in marginalized identities. Sometimes I feel um, personally that I'm, I'm caught in between and sometimes I don't know what to do. So even though I am an educator, I'm a professor, I have a you know responsibility to my students, to my to the institution where I'm at, you know, to even to the community, you know, where I live as an educator. But then I think, okay, in social media, I am also an educator, I'm a content creator, I'm like all of these different hats, right? <clears throat> But at the end of the day, I don't have that responsibility to be educating other folks on certain issues. I shouldn't be extracted for my knowledge without compensation or be tokenized, which all this has happened. So I've experienced a lot of racial microaggressions on social media and I've had to negotiate my values, but at the same time, this presentation of, I need to act professional. I need to be professional. And how does that look like? And that is oftentimes monitoring, surveilling, and policing my thoughts and my voice so that I don't make other people uncomfortable. I've caught myself doing that. That is so painful and it is so oppressive. Do I have an answer? I'm still struggling because on the one hand, I want to be true to myself, like my authenticity as a as a human being and showing up in the world, but then I'm scared, I'm anxious, I'm nervous because that's where it's the bending, you know, um, where it's the challenging of professionalism. Like, oh, what are people going to think because I, you know, have a PhD? What are people going to think because I'm an educator? What are people going to think, blah, blah, blah? They're not going to see me as professional. And I worked so hard 
to be where I'm at, you know, in terms of my profession or even creating the content and the community that I have on social media. Like I worked so hard and it takes a couple people to try to discredit you because of how you show up, because of the language that you use. So oftentimes BIPOC folks can't give a complete fuck about professionalism. I wish I could. Sometimes like I try to <laughs> like, okay, I'm, I'm eating there halfway because at the end of the day, people are still going to judge me. People are still going to criticize me. Like, oh, you shouldn't be saying fuck. You shouldn't be saying bad words. Like you have, you're a professor, you're this, you're that. You shouldn't be doing this because that's unprofessional. No te vistas así, no digas esto, no, no, no manejes ese carro. Oh, pues como si eres una profesional, tienes que estar manejando tal cosa, etcétera, etcétera. O sea, nunca vamos a encajar. Nunca vamos a encajar con este ideal del profesionalismo, porque el ideal del profesionalismo está arriesgado en la supremacía blanca. Y yo no soy una persona blanca, nunca lo voy a hacer. Estas son ideologías que nos limitan, nos limitan nuestro potencial, limitan nuestras voces. Y cuando limitan nuestras voces y nuestro potencial, no podemos contribuir nuestros talentos a la sociedad. So this need, BIPOC person, if you're listening to me, if there is a sense of urgency or you feel that you need to be professional, I want to ask you to think about that. You know, where is this coming from? Why? It is such a disservice. <coughs> it's such a disservice for us to have to negotiate and compromise sometimes our identities so that we're not seen as, quote, too much for other people or to appease other people. Who does professionalism benefit at the end of the day? I understand that sometimes we have to follow these codes of conduct, that we have to follow these norms in order for us to have access to certain spaces, to people. It's professionalism is rooted in gatekeeping as well. It's like I'm so tired and exhausted, constantly have to break, <laughs> break these barriers. <laughs> pero cómo nos presentamos para que las personas nos tomen en cuenta, nos tomen en serio. Tenemos que actuar y hablar y vestirnos de cierta manera. O sea, la neta que es que esa es la realidad a veces. Pero ya porque esa es la realidad, no quiere decir que tiene que ser tu realidad. Entonces, what are you willing to gain? What are you willing to learn about yourself? When you begin to show up authentically and you redefine professionalism in your own terms, how would that feel in your body? How would it feel to talk in your native language? How would it feel to eat your cultural foods in, in the workplace, to show up authentically? And if you're already doing that, I am so proud of you. And if you're still struggling, you're working toward that, 
Welcome to the club. <laughs> so in this episode, I, honestly, I, I don't have, I don't have steps or solutions or here are some couple strategies of what you can do, like, or, or bullet, bullet points or bullet ideas. Um, I don't have them. What I, what I do have for you is acknowledging the harm that professionalism can have on your mental health, on your well-being, on your multiple identities. You don't want professionalism to silence you completely. You don't want professionalism to negate and dismiss and invalidate your identities. I want you to think about that. So <laughs> if we don't want to be silenced, if we want to show up in the world in our multiple intersecting identities to be authentic, then what do we do? What do you do? You continue to show up, continue to show up every day, show up every day. Some days you will show up more authentic. And then what I'm saying by showing up more authentic, you're, you're on, you are an authentic individual. It's like, perhaps one day you'll show up more in, in one part of your identity. Maybe in another day you'll show up in a couple more or multiple identities. Showing up every day is what matters. Please do not dim your light so you don't, are not seen threatening to someone else or that you're not seeing us too much or, you know, whatever ideas that other people may have. Don't dim your light so other people can shine. Acuesta tuya. <laughs> Don't dim your light. You have so much to give to society, to your family, to your community. And part of showing up involves doing the work of dismantling any internalized oppression you may have, limiting beliefs that you may have, as well as the traumas that you have experienced. So showing up authentically is a life journey and dismantling professionalism is also a journey. Like I said, I'm still working through that. I'm still trying to negotiate that balance of being true to my voice and speaking up, speaking up in my voice. And you know, and that's going to vary. Some days my voice will be different than other days. It's how can I honor that voice? How can I continue to honor my ancestors who were telling me, hazlo tu puedes, eres una chingona. No tengas miedo. Tú puedes. Y me da miedo. Me da miedo la capacidad que tengo. Me da miedo la visión que tengo. Me da miedo decir ciertas cosas porque son cosas fuertes. Me da miedo por quien soy como mujer, como mexicana inmigrante. Me da miedo perder credibilidad. Esa es una realidad. That's a reality that BIPOC 
fight pug pokes, struggle with to establish ourselves in in institutions, the to forge the way, to pave the way, and then for people to begin to discredit us because we are not professional. That's scary. But you need to continue to trust your voice. You need to continue to trust your intuition, trust your ancestors. You need to continue to trust yourself and embody that voice and challenge professionalism because at the heart of professionalism is diet culture, a system of oppression. And in order for us to dismantle this, these systems of oppression, it begins with us in doing that work. When you give yourself permission to show up in the world with your voice, how you dress, what you do, you're giving others permission to be themselves. Someone that I admire and a big shout out is Luis Cornejo, who is a queer indigenous content creator and model. <laughs> I love Luis. I'm super excited actually. <laughs> uh, next week's episode will be about Luis and self-love and showing up authentically. <laughs> this is actually a, a great way uh, to end um, this episode is that invitation to continue to show up authentically when you can, when you feel safe. It's like little by little, begin to conquer those fears. Poquito, un día a la vez, poco a po poco. Thank you so much for joining me in this episode. And I look forward in connecting with you next week with our special guest. We're going to be talking about... Um, queerness and sexuality and self-love so i will see you next week nos vemos la próxima semana muchísimas gracias por acompañarme thank you so much for joining me muchas gracias por acompañarme en dismantling diet culture fuck being calladita podcast be sure to rate review and follow the show on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcast Especially be sure to rate and review the podcast if you really like it. If you leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, you become eligible for a free 30-minute coaching session. That's right. Así como escuchaste. One free session. Once you leave your review, you can screenshot it and email it to me and I'll send you a link to sign up. If you didn't like it, don't worry. Así está bien. Follow me on social media, on Instagram and TikTok at Dr. Hortensia Jimenez.